Um, the resurrection is important because it, it validates, really, um, it proves that Jesus Christ is um, truly the Messiah. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look briefly uh, and unpack, really, this idea of what the resurrected life looks like, how the resurrection affects the way that we live and the way that we see um, life. And so we'll be in 1 Corinthians 15, but let me, let me do this this morning. Um, as you're turning there, I want to explain really what's happening in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is a pastor who plants a church in this wicked city, this perverse city, um, Corinth. And, and what Paul does is he begins to uh, build community in this church, and then he leaves and goes and plants other churches. He's a church planter that moves on and plants other churches, and he realizes uh, years later after he plants this church that this church has just gone wayward. Um, he planted it in the gospel. These people believe that Jesus Christ uh, lived a perfect, sinless life, that he was born of a virgin, um, that he died on the cross for their sins, um, that he rose from the grave. They would have believed that, and they would have done community based on that idea. Um, but what he started realizing as, as he left, that they were acting insane. Um, they, were, they were getting drunk off communion wine. Um, they were um, sleeping around. There was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmom, and he was pretty proud about it. And um, they weren't really correcting issues. And so Paul writes an entire letter, which is 1 Corinthians, to correct some of the issues and untie some of the moral and theological knots that were happening in the church. And so one of the things that was happening was people around them, they, had a, a, they, were, they were in an area where everyone thought they knew everything. It was much like Greenville in that sense. You had a lot of people who had a great level of education, and they're speaking into the culture of the church. And they're saying, listen, the resurrection can't be true. The, the resurrection could, is not even possible. No one can raise from the dead. And so what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is he unpacks this idea of the resurrection must be true. And so what he does is he lists off multiple things, even beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. He's like, listen, if the resurrection is true, my preaching is useless. If the resurrection is true, all Christians are liars. If the resurrection isn't true, our fate is futile and we're still in our sins and there's no hope in life or in death. Basically, what he means by that is you could never, if the resurrection did not happen, you could never go to a person who just lost a loved one and say, hey, listen, they're in a better place. Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then the dead stay dead. That's what, he's, what Paul argues. So 1 Corinthians 15, he's unpacking this idea. And then he moves from, uh, beginning in verse 20, he moves from hypotheticals, uh, which are, if the resurrection wasn't true, then X, Y, Z. Then he moves into the things that are very certain to Paul. So he moves from hypotheticals to certainties. And this is what he does in verse 20. Look at with me in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But, in fact, this is a certainty, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, this is a great certainty, is it not? Isn't this a great certainty that Paul would say this? Uh, it's, it's a great certainty because here's what we believe. We believe what Paul actually says is what God actually says. Um, because as believers in Jesus, uh, we believe that this word is infallible. It's, it's God's word. Uh, we believe that all 40 authors who compiled it over uh, years and years and years in three different continents and uh, three different languages, uh, we believe that this word, all 40 authors, including Paul, are all inspired 
inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So everything that Paul says that's a certainty is the certainty that God has inspired him to say. And so we have this certainty because it's in God's word that Christ has been risen indeed. And so this is what Paul does. He lays out then another certainty for us. And if you look in verse 21, uh, we'll take a look at that. He says, For the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for by a man came what? Death. By a man has come also the resurrection of death. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what Paul does is he's building this case of um, you have a resurrection, a resurrected life versus a dead life. And what he does in order to explain what uh, the, the dead life looks like, he points back to who? Points back to Adam, right? He goes back to Genesis. So let me explain what Paul is unpacking here, this big idea. Um, the Bible begins, it starts off, it says, in the beginning, God. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. And it has this beautiful picture of uh, the spirit is hovering over the waters of the earth. It's a really eerie, kind of cool picture. Um, and then you start to see God is Trinity. You start to, you start to see this, uh, this layer unpacked of God is, uh, God is three in one. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And it says, let us make man in our own image. So he creates man. And let me tell you what. He doesn't create man because he's lonely, all right? He's not like, you know what? It'd be nice. I want somebody to watch TV with, or I want someone to play. You know, it's just a little bit awkward to play basketball, you know, because we've got only three of us, and we need a couple extra players. So let me, let me do man and, you know, the, 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 the one-on-one tournament's getting old, you know. And, and so it's not that deal where he's, he's lonely, so he's got to create man to, to fulfill this longing that he has because God is not lonely. God is not in need of us, all right? Uh, so God's not lonely. So what he does is he creates man on the earth so that man would enjoy him and so that man would see him as to be worshipped and to be praised and to be gloried above all things. So God places man on this earth so that he makes us in our hearts so that we would worship him. That's how he's made us. So he places man in this beautiful garden and he says the rest of the world is rugged and untamed. And he tells man, Adam, um, to make the rest of the world look like this garden. And so man is trying to keep it and trying to do it. And even, listen to this, even before sin entered the world, God realized that man can need some help, all right? He's going, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how that plant needs to be made. No, no, you need a feminine touch, right? And so he, Adam falls asleep. Um, God pulls out one of his ribs. He creates Eve. And it's it's an interesting picture in Genesis because you see Adam, he's naming all the, the animals, he has this responsibility. So he's like, you know, um, ostrich, you know, giraffe, elephant. And then all of a sudden, he's woken up from his sleep and he sees a naked woman show up. And he's like, um, that's mine, right? I don't know how to name this other than that. That's mine. It's woman, which means mine. He says, and then he goes into poetry. He's like, this is the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. And all of a sudden, he's like a poet, when a naked woman shows up. And so he has this um, 
relationship with this woman. He has a marriage with this woman. It says the two shall become one flesh. And there's beautiful sex in the garden. There's man and woman naked and unashamed. Every man from that point on has been longing for that, to be naked and unashamed in the wilderness with a naked woman, right? And so what you have here is man and woman who are one, and they have communion with God that is perfect and sinless in this world. And it says, Scripture actually uses this rhythm phrase over and over again. It says, again, God saw that it was good. And so all things God gave man so that he would enjoy God. He gave him woman so that he would enjoy sex with this woman. He would enjoy relationship with this woman so that he would ultimately realize that God is good. He gave him beautiful food and wonderful trees to eat of in the garden so that when he ate of, this tree, of, of a particular tree and when he, would, when he would enjoy worship and plowing and making the rest of the world look like the garden, all of that was so that he would look up to his God and say that that God is a good God. This God loves me. There was no other gods to be worshipped. There was no idols. He was it. So all of his affections, all of his desires were on God. But listen, God gave Adam one verse to memorize. And here it is, Genesis 2.17. But the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it and you shall surely die. This is the only verse that man had to memorize. This is it. There wasn't any other verses left. There wasn't the Bible. This is it. Everything else he had direct communicating, communication with God about. If he ever wanted to know anything about God, he could just ask, right? Just communion. He's like, listen, this is one verse. Don't mess this thing up. This is it. Don't eat of this particular tree. And what happens? It says the serpent is more cunning. He comes into the garden. The Satan comes into the form of a serpent in the garden. He begins to tempt this dude's wife. And then she begins to talk to the serpent, and it says that Adam stands there in passivity. And she takes the fruit, and she hands it to her husband who was with her. He's standing there, and she begins to butcher this one verse. She says, uh, you shouldn't eat it or um, I, like touch it, or you'll die or something. And he's just standing there. So you have this passivity that's taken place. And so Adam sin before God because he takes of this fruit. He fails to heed to the word of God. He doesn't memorize the verse very well and he doesn't apply it. And so Romans five twelve says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to how many men? All men and women because all have sinned. Romans 5, 18 says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And so Adam, because of this now, all of us who were born of Adam, they were our first parents. We are inherited this curse of sin in our lives. So we are born really with a heart that all it knows what to do is sin. That's it. That's what we're born with. So everything that we want to do is longing for creation and not the creator. That's what we long for. We long for more intimacy with other people other than God. We long for more food. We long for more wine. We long for more entertainment. We want more and more things, but we hate the God of the universe. That's how we're created. 
Psalm uh, 53, 2 through two, uh, 3 says this, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who do, does good. No, not one. No, not, um, one. And Romans 3.23 says, all sin and fallen short of the glory of God because of this problem that we have, the sin heart issue that we have that because of Adam's sin we're born into. And so what does our sin do to us? Here's what it does to us. Let me just show you this. In Colossians 2 and Ephesians 2 it says this, and you who are dead in your trespasses, you're dead in your sin, even Jesus says this in, in John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sin. John eight thirty four. it says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6 says, you are a slave to sin. And so this is what that means. That everything that God has given us Everything on this earth that God has uh, placed, even in the garden that was, was supposed to be so we could grab a hold of and say, this tastes good, so God who created it must be good. I want to worship God. Rather, that we don't have that anymore because of sin. Now what we have is, this tastes good. I want to worship this. This will be my God. This will be my idol. This will be my satisfaction. This will be my joy. And so the creator is placed on the shelf because of our wicked heart desires and longs for creation and not the creator. Let me just take an example of that. Um, what you have, think about food, for instance. If you have food and you, you looked at food, and food is, yes, to make us live, absolutely, God's created food so that we could continue to live and survive, right? But he's also made it taste really awesome, right? Like when I take my son to Burberry Yogurt, and I pour, you know, I pour in the, the cake batter yogurt, and then he goes through this uh, just plethora of, of stuff that he can choose from, right? They even have, I mean, cookie dough slices and little pieces of cheesecake, and then you have that, I don't even know who invented it, but I want to kiss him when I meet him. It's that thing, like, it's like that, that, that cream stuff that comes out. And it's like you, you press it, and what is it, like whipped cream in a jar or something? It's, it's unbelievable to me that you can squirt it, and it, and it, and it, and it like melts into the very fabric. Anyway, don't even get me started. Um, and so what I want to do, though, is I want to tell Finn, you know, when, when he asked me, why is this flavor good? I want to say, well, because God is good, and God loves you so much that he made these flavors. When they combine, they just explode in your mouth, and you, and you just should worship him more. And that's, the, that's why he's done it. To, to, and, and so every single thing that he's given you, colors that he loves, that my, my son, you know, he loves, well, he loves a different color every week. But he asked me, you know, why is blue good? Because God made blue a beautiful color so that when you see it, you're supposed to worship him. You're supposed to long for him. You're supposed to love him because it's, it's made that way so that you could look to him as good. But what we do with food, for instance, is we worship food. It becomes our idol. And you even have on the Food Network, there's whole shows on comfort foods. Comfort foods. I thought the Holy Spirit was our comforter. Isn't that right? Isn't he supposed to be our comforter? But no, food has replaced the Holy Spirit so that when we have a really bad day at work, when we go home, we go straight to the refrigerator and that will, survive, that will help us with our longing and our, our stress for just a temporary moment. But it won't last. But that's how we do with food. God has created wine for us to enjoy. You look in Ecclesiastes, you, you see the Song of Solomon, he's consistently saying, you are like good food and good wine. He's consistently saying that about the Savior. 
Uh, but, but what has happened? We take it now, and it becomes an idol, and we rely on it. So when we have a stressful day, we go to it constantly. And man, if I can just get a little buzz on, I'll be all right. I can ignore my, my neighbor, right? If I get sloppy drunk, I won't have to worry about, you know, the exam I got, right? And so we just continue to, to fall into that, and it becomes a God for us. Let's, what, what about sex? What about sex? Sex, instead of something that is made between a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman in the confines of a godly marriage, it's now become something that we have now porn addicts, we have sex addicts. Then you see it go out of hand into prostitution. You see rape. You see child molestation. And it goes on and on and on and how our idols that are made, God has created these things in our lives and place them in our lives so that we could enjoy them and so that we could see that he is good. Rather, we take them and we worship them and we try to find satisfaction and joy in only them and not him and they end up destroying us. I mean, how many times do you really overeat and you feel like, yeah, I feel great, right? How many times does that happen? And we can go over sex addictions and ask people who have that struggle and say, is that, is that satisfying you at all? The answer is no, but we keep going back because we believe in this lie and we trade the creation over the creator. And so God isn't some kind of killjoy where he's like, I don't want you to do this. And he's slapping us on the hand. No, rather he knows that he is the only thing that can bring you true joy, true satisfaction. He's it. And so when we try to find joy outside of him, that's when we begin to love creation more than our creator and that's when we become more and more discontent. So, let's see what Paul says about if Christ didn't race in the grave, what this would look like. Verse 30 of 15, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, if I, humanly speaking, I fought the beast of Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Basically, he's saying, listen, why would I work so hard at being a, a, a church planter and a pastor? Why would I be moved to a city so that people would know Jesus and long for him? I, I, I've wasted my time. And then what he says is this, is this verse 32. Uh, verse, uh, verse 32, the second part, half, he says, if the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning, for have no knowledge of God. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So what this life looks like is if Christ didn't raise in the grave, Scripture says that, uh, as Psalm 5, 5 says, it says, Both boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm eleven five it says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God's hatred and God's wrath is poured on us because of Adam's sin. If Christ did not raise, we are still stuck with that hatred that God hates sinners. And let's not try to romanticize it and say, well, God hates the sin, not the sinner. No, actually it says God hates the sinners. 
because God's hatred is on sin, and we, by the way, are sinners, right? So God's hatred is on us, and if Christ didn't raise in the grave, then God's hatred is still on us. And he says, listen, the only joy that you can find is eat, drink, and tomorrow you'll die. And that's what you'll live for. That's going to be your life. But let me show you the hope that we have in Jesus, because that right there is really bad news. But let me just show you the hope that we have in Jesus in verse 22. Jump up to 22. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also, listen to this, in Christ shall all be made what? Alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will live. These are those who will live forever. They will have eternal life. He's saying, listen, the sin of Adam, all of us are condemned to die because of our sin. And you say, well, I'm not a sinner. But if you look, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what is the hope that we have? The hope is in Christ. He says, we will live. And he says, in our first fruits. So um, all those believers who love Jesus, they will have new bodies and new life at his second coming. We'll be giving a glorified body. And so this world is not our home as believers in Jesus. And so what this shows us and what I didn't do um, at the very beginning when I showed you your position as a son or a daughter of Adam, who are all of us, I showed you your position in that. I, I shared with you a list of verses. But I, what I didn't do is I didn't finish those verses because I want to show you now the finished verses so that you could see the hope that you have in Christ. When I talk, shared with you Colossians 2 or Ephesians 2, it says, and you who are dead in your trespasses, you are dead in your sins. This is what he says in Colossians 2. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiving, forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling, listen to this, the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands he set aside, nailing it to the cross. John eight twenty four. when Jesus told the crowd, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, but this is what he says next. For unless you believe that I am him, you will die in your sins. So unless you believe that he is who he says he was, you will die in your sins. John 8, 34, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We've read that. But here's what it says next. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Romans 6, when he talks about you being a slave to your sin, this is what it says. For we have been united with him in a death like this. We shall certainly be united with him in a what? Resurrection like his. We shall know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So yes, 
We're born into sin. Yes, we continue the sin of Adam. You and me both do that. And when God looks down into, from the heavens, he looks down and he sees, is there anyone who does good? And the answer is no. Not in and of ourselves. But he's, listen, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe in Jesus, you will die in your sins. So God's wrath, who is placed on man, who God hates the sin of man, and he looks down, he doesn't see anyone righteous, and he hates the sin of man, he hates sinners. What happens is the wrath that was placed on man when Jesus went to the cross for our sin, who died as a substitute for our sin, what Jesus, what God sees is Jesus taking on the sins of man and God's wrath, what was what should be on man, is now placed on his only begotten son. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 13, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, he, we, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect sinless life. So he was born of a virgin, which means he didn't carry the, the sin of Adam and then he went and lived a perfect sinless life. He was tempted in every single way. And when he went to the cross, he took on our sin and God's wrath and God's hatred was placed on his son. And that's what it means when we talk about substitutionary atonement. Which means that Jesus died in our place. And that's just a simple way to explain the gospel. Christ in our place. So Jesus took the penalty and the sin in the very way that God promised to Adam that if you eat of this, you will surely die. And Jesus, from the cross, because of the weight of our sin, he did surely die. And he was in the grave for three days and he rose from the grave, conquering the penalty of sin, which is death, which shows you that what he did on the cross, only God could raise from the grave. And so it proves that he is the Messiah. And if we repent of our sins and we believe that Jesus came and he died and he rose from the grave, Jesus says, you too will no longer be in your sin because we're made alive in Christ. And so the gospel's not just, if you pray this prayer, it's not just, if you, you know, Trust Jesus, you'll have a better life. You're a good person. No. The gospel is this. You're dead in your sins. And only Christ can make you alive. So the gospel is not about making good people better. It's about making dead people alive. And so, so without a life like this, believing in the resurrection, Paul says we should just eat, drink, and tomorrow we'll die because death is the end. And so if, if you don't know Jesus, this is what Paul is saying. This is your heaven. This world that we live in is our heaven. So all the things that we consume and all the things that we love, that is the most joy that we'll ever see is in the created things, not the creator. This is our heaven. This is it. If, we're, if we don't know Jesus, this is it. But if you belong to Jesus, this is your hell. Because there's a new heaven and a new earth and you will receive a new glorified body because Christ has risen. And when he takes 
He takes your heart, stone, that's sinful, and only desires self-righteousness and self-glory. He rips it out and he replaces it with a new heart that loves him and that worships, worships him above all things. And through that, when you enter into a relationship with him, it's an abundant life. He fills you with his Holy Spirit where you now, you go back to enjoying the things that he's given you. He's given you freedom to enjoy good food, good wine, good fellowship, good sex. And you can look at these things and say, you know what? God is really good. He's great and he's wonderful and he's powerful. And then this is not even the end for me. I can enjoy these things, but I'm going to have even greater fellowship, greater worship, greater community with God in heaven in a glorified state in a place without sin. So it's not the end for us. And that's good news. I mean, I've been wanting to dunk all my life. I mean, I, could, I used to be able to grab the rim with two fingers, and that was a big deal for me. I could almost dunk a marble, all right? I, have, I am really white, and I, when I go out in the sun, I get burned horrifically, all right? I have to wear a long sleeve shirt, and I will still get burned. I can watch a movie with the sun in it and still get burned, all right? <laughs> I will get burned easily. And so my body, um, man, I got bad knees, I'm only 33 years old, but man, I can't do anything. Like I, I worked out with a bunch of guys from church, and I threw up. I mean, just after a few things. You can ask these guys if they saw me heaving and rolling around the grass. And, um, and I know that this, but I, I don't get too bent out of shape about that because this, this is, this is it for me. Like, I know that this is my body that God will. Redeemed because he's rose from the grave. I'm going to have a new body. I'm going to have a new life. And this is hell. This is the closest I'll get to hell right here on earth. So I can enjoy things. Even if I'm throwing up, I can still worship and say, you know what, thank you for this reminder. This world's not my home, Lord. (laughs) Some of you, man, you might have pain. You might have sickness. You might have ailments that you were born with. But if you're a believer in Jesus, you have hope in the resurrection because you know what? This isn't your home. This isn't your home. You may have just had a horrible life, just faced with great and great suffering that God has placed in your life. But you know what? Because it rose from the grave, this isn't your home. This isn't your home, that's the hope that you have. If you don't know Christ, this is, the, this is your heaven. Because you live for your sin and you live for your glory. And so my plead with you this morning is, man, that you would see the the depth of the resurrection and what he's accomplished for us. That he conquers death, which offers you a new life. When Christ cried out to God, he said, it, was, it is finished, it's done. So when you take your sins to him, he forgives you of all your sins. He cleanses you of all your unrighteousness. And so for the one who doesn't know Christ, this world is all they can live for. And I believe also as I'm saying this right now, I think there's someone in this room that thinks they know Jesus and they don't. And they say, you know what, I'm going to do just what I can to get by so that I can get to heaven, but I'm still going to consume and enjoy this world more than I do the God of the universe. I'm going to love creation more than I love my creator. And I'm going to get by, I'm going to fool everybody. And I'm going to live like hell so that one day I'll just get to heaven and it will work out. Listen, you're missing out on the abundant life 
that Jesus offers when he gives you that new heart, and then you're missing out on eternal life. And scripture says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, it says, what shall I say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? So when Jesus saves us, he makes us a new creation. Our old man dies, and behold, all things become new. And that is only through his resurrection. And so this morning, uh, what I'd like to ask you to do this morning, if you're a believer, I'd like to ask you to, to be thankful for his resurrection because this world is not your home. And so when you look at your life and you look at things that will press you and things that will stress you with the sufferings that you may face, the financial tension that you may see, the, the marital tensions that you may see, just be a reminder that this is temporary. As Peter says, this is only happening for a little while, which he's saying your life, but you have eternity to look forward to because of the resurrection of Jesus. If you're not a believer, this is the closest to heaven that you'll get. And you'll miss out on the abundant life. And the only thing that you long for will never bring you true satisfaction and joy. And actually, it will end up killing you. And so I would ask you to cry out to God. To repent of your sins. To acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you need him. And to cry out to him and say, God, would you save me? I believe in your resurrection and your salvation and your cross. And I can't make you believe And even you saying that you believe doesn't make you believe. The only thing that will make you believe is the Holy Spirit working and prodding on your heart and drawing you to himself. So you have to cry out and you have to knock at heaven's door that God would save you. I'll ask you that this morning. Why don't we pray and be thankful for the resurrection of Jesus.